right. Uh, so I want to talk this morning. Um, we got a long wait before July, uh, and um, this is kind of a season of waiting. And so I want to talk a little bit about waiting this morning, uh, and, and I want to think about a couple of kinds of waiting. And the first kind of waiting, uh, I'm going to, I reach deep into my uh, amazing thesaurus, and I'm going to call this first kind of waiting, waiting, okay? Um, and Christmas is kind of a season where we're waiting, and I think some people are really into Christmas. They start waiting for the next Christmas, like the day afterwards, right? They're 364 days of waiting. But for most of us, we start waiting for Christmas after Thanksgiving. And if you're one of those folks that decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving, just shame on you. I hope you just leave feeling horrible about yourself. Okay. Um, but uh, we usually start waiting sometime after Thanksgiving, right? And, and there's some complexity to our waiting for Christmas. We're excited about it. There's also a lot of stress. We've got a lot of things we have to do. Uh, and sometimes we're happy to have a few more weeks. I can't tell you how often in the Christmas season I say, I wish I had one more week, right? Because uh, I'm not quite ready for it yet. Our waiting in the Christmas season is very active, right? We go out and we get trees and we put up decorations and we buy presents. We do all kinds of stuff in our waiting. Um, but but that, this first season of, of waiting is kind of complicated, right? And sometimes we're excited. Sometimes we're wanting to push it off. But then at the very end of the Christmas season, there's a, a different kind of waiting that I'm going to call intense waiting, okay? And if you've been, as most of you have been, a kid on Christmas Eve, you know what intense waiting feels like. Uh, in, in my home, when I grew up as a child, I was an only kid. We would go to church on Christmas Eve. Then we'd go to get together with my small family, and we'd meet at my grandma's house, and we'd have sort of heavy hors d'oeuvres. Sometimes we'd open one present, and we'd spend a lot of time there. We'd come home kind of late. My parents would get me into bed, and it would be, you know, 9, 10 o'clock, and they have to go, like, do Christmas things because they're not quite ready. And I am in bed trying to go to sleep, and it is impossible, right? Have you had this? Because I'm intensely waiting. So I lay in my bed and I sleep and I, I wake up and I sleep and I wake up. And around um, three or four in the morning, it would be like, I'm done. Like the sleeping is over, right? And I knew I couldn't wake up my parents till six. So, and, and we lived uh, in a multi-story house. So bedrooms on the second floor, Christmas happened on the first floor with the tree. I would go sit on the edge of the steps, right? At like 4 a.m. And I'm just sitting there just intensely waiting, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm doing this thing sometimes, and I'm leaning. I'm not allowed to go downstairs because I might see something I'm not supposed to see, but I'm leaning down the stairs to see what, and I'm just, just it's intense. And when I got older, um, as a teenager, I had a TV in my room, but no cable. I just had broadcast channels. I would wake up at 4 a.m., and I was too old to sit on the steps and lean, and so I would watch TV in my room. You know what's on TV at 4 a.m. on Christmas Day? Nothing. It's awful, right? It is torture um, because you're just intensely waiting. You, you, you know that experience, right, of intensely waiting. Uh, I, I think that's really important for us as we reflect on uh, this story of Christmas uh, and this idea of um, a prophet who is to come. See, Moses ends his ministry by saying, um, there's going to be somebody else. There's going to be somebody else like me. And, and I hope you noticed the editor who ends the book of, of Deuteronomy, right, isn't Moses because Moses is dead at this point. 
Uh, they're not so sure, right? Never since has arisen a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants in his entire land, and for the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. The editor says, I don't know that anybody's ever going to measure up to Moses. Joshua was great. He was an amazing leader. He wasn't Moses. And, and as the rest of the story goes on for another 1,500 years, every time somebody significant comes up, the people of God are waiting. Right? They're waiting to say, hey, is this the one? So David comes along. Boy, David is this awesome guy. Is he the prophet Moses talked about? Mm, no, clearly not. Elijah comes along. Elijah does some neat stuff. Is Elijah the No, he's not quite like Moses. Uh, Esther, the queen of the Persian Empire, mm, not quite like Moses. And we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And as you read the story of Scripture, you realize uh, it's that kind of complex waiting a lot of the time, where people are, yeah, it would be great if Messiah came, if this prophet came, but I can use another week. I got some other stuff I'd like to get done first. I'm not quite ready for Messiah to come. I would be fine, actually, if, if Messiah comes in the next generation so I could live this life the way I want to live it, right? It's, it's waiting, but it's that first kind of waiting. And, and then we get to people like Simeon and Anna. And Simeon and Anna are, are, are this kind of waiting, right? I mean, Simeon and Anna are, are peering around the corner. They cannot wait for Messiah. It has consumed their life. And we get this language. We're told that, that Simeon is a devout man who's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, that Anna doesn't leave the temple, right? I mean, she's there all the time because they have this intensity about their expectation of the coming of Messiah, right? It's been 1,500 years since Moses talked about it, but they are on the edge of their seats. And I want to think that today, part of our work as the people of God who have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to come back is to recognize that we're called to more than just waiting. We're called to intensely waiting, to waiting like Simeon and Anna, waiting in such a way that we are consumed with our desire to see Jesus come back. So I want to talk about uh, three ways um, that we are called to intensely wait for Jesus. Uh, and, and the first is um, uh, we're called to intensely wait for Jesus by prioritizing our pastimes, prioritizing our pastimes. Uh, and, and, and here's how I think about this. I think that there are a number of things that I do on a regular basis that might not matter to me if I was intensely waiting, right? They, they're kind of fun and they keep me interested, but if I was intensely waiting for Jesus, they might not matter. Uh, what are some of those things? My video game score probably doesn't matter, right? If I see the next episode of the TV show I'm watching uh, in a certain time frame, probably doesn't matter. Um, if the popular kids in school think my clothes are cool or not, probably doesn't matter. Um, there's all uh, if I make more or less money than my brother or my neighbor or my coworker, probably doesn't matter. The intensity of my waiting makes those things kind of start to fade a little bit and their 
significance. Just like, um, you know, okay, normally I like watching TV, but on Christmas morning it holds no interest for me, Um, because the intensity makes everything else start to fade. By the way, um, that intense waiting can actually make some um, things that are kind of important become a little bit less important, which is a good thing. Um, And our culture, we're often told that you've got to find the right woman or the right man uh, to get married, to be happy, to be complete. And I'm pro-marriage. It's great. Um, but if I'm intensely waiting for Jesus, that quest for emotional um, uh, uh, relationship fulfillment might fade a little bit, right? It might not be the main thing for me. Uh, it's great to love your job and find fulfillment in it, and I hope everybody who works does But if I'm intensely waiting for Jesus, I don't have to be fulfilled in my job every moment of every day because it's not where I find my identity or my purpose, right? It's it's part of me, but it's not all of me. Um, Whether I am recognized for what I'm great at, whether I fit in perfectly, there are a lot of things that aren't um, unimportant but just become less important when we're intensely waiting for Jesus. Uh, By the way, as an aside, I think one of our enemy's goals is not that we run off and commit these horrible, atrocious sins, uh, but that we simply begin to value too much things that God values less, that we start valuing too much the things that God values less. And there are a number of ways that we are able to prioritize our pastimes. Um, One of the huge ways this happens is when some kind of crisis happens in our life. I had the privilege yesterday of sitting with some of our Hearts of Hope families um, in our Bolden Hall. We had the kids and families come in and have Christmas cookies and punch, and we had Christmas stories playing, and a bunch of us were just sitting there and talking. It was a really fun morning. And I had a conversation with one of the young dads who was there, and I'm going to share this story because it's a, it's a public story. It was actually in the news uh, a few months ago. So about five months ago, this family... Um, was home when we had that huge tornado warning. Uh, They had a home in Weston, and theirs was the only home, as as far as I know, that was totally demolished by that tornado. Uh, They were home. They were very grateful that their kids were at a babysitter's because they had a 2 a.m. shift that morning. Um, So they were home. They fled to their basement. When the tornado was over, there were five or six trees that had landed on their house the living room no longer had a roof, and the roof over one of the cribs had collapsed and crushed the crib beneath it. Um, Really, really scary. And since that time, uh, this family, mother and father and and four children, has been living in an apartment. They're still paying the mortgage on their destroyed house because they want to keep the land, and they're waiting for the insurance to rebuild. It's been five months, and nobody does construction in the winter in Wisconsin. And while they're paying the mortgage on that home, they're also paying rent for the apartment in which they're living, which costs more money than their mortgage. Um, And the father and the mother are picking up extra shifts to make ends meet, and that's kind of what brought them to us. And as we talked, I was struck by two things. First, I was struck um, by the way that crisis created this intense waiting for them. There was a lot of stuff in their life that mattered to them before their house was destroyed that just doesn't matter now. And, And even though they've been waiting for months, they are really, really looking forward to being in their home again. 
The other thing that struck me was uh, the incredible courage and patience, that the, the attitude this young dad had as he told his story, right? Because it'd be really easy to be bitter, really easy to just be angry and upset. How is it possible that only my house got destroyed when all the other houses were spared? I'm glad they were spared, but why me? Right? And that wasn't his attitude at all. Um, and I was struck by um, his, his courage and his patience. And I thought, uh, I would like to live like that. And if possible, without the crisis. I would like to live like that in that sort of intense waiting, focused on what God's going to do next, focused on um, the, ultimately the return of Jesus without the crisis. So I, I think our, there's a way to do that. Um, and, and if our first step in sort of intense waiting is to prioritize our pastimes, our next is to focus on our future. And, and I mean this in a very, very specific way. There's a question I ask myself often, and the question is, if Jesus came back right now, would I be proud that He caught me doing what I'm doing? Really simple, right? If Jesus showed up, I mean, we don't know when Jesus is coming, right? I mean, it could be in 2,000 years. It could be in the next five minutes. Um, it could be that I won't get through this sermon. And, and when Jesus showed up, I always think, would I be proud that He caught me doing what I'm doing in this moment? My wife is a high school teacher and always has a jolt of panic when I begin a story about my wife is. Anyway, um, my wife's a high school teacher, and she, as many of you do, has the experience of sometimes having your boss walk in on you in the midst of what you're doing. And I think maybe this is particularly stressful for teachers because, you know, it's the, it's, it's the Krista show when she's up there, right? She's in charge of all these kids, and you can't really control kids. You can just try your best. You've seen children's sermons. Uh, and so there are times when you're thinking, boy, I have really prepared a good lesson. This is an awesome lecture or a great lab. It would be awesome if the principal walked in to observe me right now. You know, that never happens, right? When does the principal walk in? When everything is going crazy. Um, so Krista told me a story once a few years ago. Uh, she, was, she teaches physics, and so, uh, and this, I think, um, don't spoil the story for a lack of facts, but I think this was her AP physics class, which is the advanced placement kids, you know, the really smart ones. Um, and she was doing a lab, and she'd explain what was going on, and she divided the kids up into lab groups of four or six kids, and they're all working on their projects. And I think there was something involved like a Bunsen burner, right? So they have to burn something. They're doing something electrical. They've all got their burners out. And she sees a group of kids in the back of the room. And like all six kids are crying, right? All six kids are crying. And she's like, uh, you know, it's high school. There's always somebody crying. But um, it's not usual that the whole lab group is crying. So she goes back and she's like, what's, you know, what's going on? How can I help you? So she's talking with this group of kids that are having some kind of crisis. And while she's doing that, um, one of the other lab groups is working diligently with their Bunsen burner or whatever, except for one kid who gets a great idea. And he says, I wonder what would happen if I took a pair of scissors and I cut through the electrical cord while it was plugged in. Yeah, and so um, said kid, AP physics, uh, said kid goes and gets his scissors, and um, while his classmates aren't watching and Krista's dealing with a crisis in the back of the room, he cuts through the electrical cord of his thing. So several things happen at once. There are sparks that fly. He yells because, you know, it's kind of a shocking thing to have happened to you. Um, and no? Okay. Um, 
And I, I, don't, I, I just imagine that his hair, I don't know if this is true, but I imagine his hair stands up like Doc Brown in Back to the Future, right? Uh, with little sparks dancing on the edge of it. And so he's like, oh my gosh, Mrs. Gates, I just cut through the electrical cord and it hurt really bad. And she was like, yeah, you, uh-huh. Um, and that's the kind of moment when the principal walks in, right? And, and someone's hair is literally on fire. And people are weeping, the, the Wassail Warriors are weeping in the back. And um, that's how it always goes, right? It always happens in those moments. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you that Krista told me later, um, and she told the principal, um, what happened with this kid wasn't a shock to anybody else, okay? Um, no? No? Okay, that's fine. Uh, I said that one was good. Um, but, but, but here's the deal, right? The principal is coming. Right? There will be a moment when Jesus shows up and, and it won't be the moment that we have carefully curated on our Facebook page to look as wonderful and loving and happy as we can, right? And, and so part of our job, one of the ways that we prioritize our pastimes without a, a massive crisis in our life is we start focusing on our future and saying, Jesus, um, I want to be ready when you show up. I want to be intensely waiting so when you He's not going to walk in the door. He's going to appear in the sky. But when you appear in the sky, I want to be caught doing something awesome. Right? I want to be caught right where I'm supposed to be. I want to be Simeon, right? who is a man who is devout and righteous, who the Holy Spirit rests upon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel so that when God comes and says, hey, Simeon, Messiah is coming, he is ready to go. Right? He is ready to get up and walk to the temple and pick up baby Jesus and say, holy smokes, my life is complete. That, that's what intense waiting is like. Right? It's, it's a willingness to be ready. It's, it's focusing on, on Jesus coming back and what I'll be doing when He returns. Uh, one more thing I think that's really important for us as we think about this intense waiting uh, is we, we, our, our, our present has to be rooted in proximity. Our present has to be rooted in proximity. And what do I mean by that? I, I come back to the story of Anna. I love Anna. She is this incredible woman. I don't know if you heard her little bio in the Scripture today, um, but she was married for seven years. Then she was a widow until she was 84. Um, being a widow is hard anytime, right? Being a widow is hard anytime. In ancient Israel, um, you were expected to get married and have kids, and if you're a woman who hasn't done that, in ancient Israel, people are looking at you like, well, why not? Right? And, and you don't have a source of income unless you're married or you have kids that can take care of you. And, and she doesn't, we don't even know if she has a home, right? Because we're told that she's in the temple day and night worshiping God. All Anna wants is just to be close to God. Let me say a couple things really quick that are important. The first is, she's in the temple 24-7. Please don't stay in this building 24-7. That is not the takeaway from today's sermon, okay? That would just be weird. Um, she's in the temple 24-7 because at that time, up until Jesus shows up, at that time, that is the place of the presence of God. Everything changes with Jesus, right? Because then the presence of God is in this baby, and then ultimately the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? So now wherever we go as Christians with the Holy Spirit in us, we take the presence of God with us. So we don't have to be in a building to be with God, right? But, but she did. Here's the other thing that's important about Anna. Um, Anna's an Israelite woman, which means there is some distance between her and God even in the temple. 
Remember how the temple is structured. Again, the temple is the place of God's presence on earth until Jesus comes. Uh, in the temple, there's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. Only the high priest goes in there. Then like concentric circles of access. And so, the high priest has the most access. And then beyond that, you've got the priestly section where all the priests can go. And then beyond that, a little more um, removed, you've got the Israelite men where they can go. And then a little bit more removed, you have the court of the women where the Israelite women can go, and then there's the court of the Gentiles, where non-Jews can be. What that means is Anna spends her entire life in the temple, and she never makes it to the center. She never makes it. She can't even make it out of the court of the women into the court of the men, much less the priests or the, or the Holy of Holies. And maybe this is your experience, right? Maybe you uh, have, been, have been trying to get closer to God, Maybe it's been a long process of saying, hey, you know what? I read the Bible and I go to church and I pray and I, I try to serve the poor. I do all the things Jesus says to do and I don't always feel that closeness. I don't know that Anna did either. But there's something incredible about that intense waiting that she was right where she wanted to be. She was as close to God as she could get until God came directly to her until um, more powerful than any high priest, right, more access than any man or priest ever, she gets to hold the baby Jesus and, 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 and literally touch the face of God. And, and so I think the, the critical work for us in this season is to reflect on our job of intensely waiting for Jesus. And we do that um, through... Um, that proximity quest of trying to get closer to God. Maybe that means um, a regular devotional um, and when I wake up in the morning. Maybe that means um, coming and having Christmas cookies and punch with some children in our community. Maybe that means you're going to get on a bus and drive 760 miles to an Indian uh, a Native American reservation in Pine Ridge. Um, but, but what are we doing to pursue that proximity with Christ what are we doing to focus on our future, to be ready when Jesus shows up? What are we doing to prioritize our pastime um, so that um, we have the opportunity to meet our God? Uh, in this season of Advent, I want to ask you um, not to wait for Jesus, but to intensely wait for Jesus and to trust that if you wait, He will show up. Thanks be to Him. Amen.